there are few things in this world that are as powerful or as strong as a really good story. A good story told by the right person can endure lifetimes, lifetimes, can last almost forever. If you really think about it, a good story told in the right way can actually captivate your imagination and, and, and like nothing else. And in those stories, what's really interesting are these, these encounters, these interactions that can completely change the whole trajectory of your life. And we all have them. If, we, if we're paying close enough attention to where we've been and what's happened in our story, we can think of those moments that have happened where we've had some sort of interaction that has actually legitimately changed the trajectory and the direction that our life goes. If you're thinking about it right now, maybe, maybe some of those things are, uh, are difficult and maybe um, hard, but other things may be inspiring or encouraging. But there's, there's, there's something that comes with our story that I think is worth contemplating, worth thinking about, and eventually, I think, sharing with other people. There's, there's something, there's, there's a, a tremendous gift in sharing some of these life-changing encounters that we had. So I'm gonna share one, and I don't, know, I don't even know why I'm gonna share this, because I've been thinking about it. It's so silly, like honestly, it's, it's very silly. But my encounter with a goat roti, and I'm going to say it again because people say, what did you just say? A goat roti, a beautiful, one of, a, an incredible dish that I had when I was about 13 or 14 years old at the Caravana Festival, my first time at Caravana. For those that don't know, it's a huge uh, Caribbean festival that happens in Toronto the long weekend in August. And it's where a million people come from all over the world to have just a big party. It's great music, food, dancing. It's amazing. So all of my, my parents, my grandparents, all of us we grew up are, are from North America. We have no, no connection to the West Indies really, except for, except for a lot of my friends growing up. So my friends decided at 14, 15 years old, decided to take me to Carabana for the first time and just show me a good time. And it was amazing. Lunchtime, we go to a vendor, order up a bottle of ting, which is like a, like a, a Caribbean drink. That's like kind of like, um, it's like a lemon lime kind of thing, really nice and a goat roti. And it was the most incredible thing I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and I declared in that moment, and I, as I'm saying this, it's, just, it's almost ridiculous that I'm telling the story. But as I ate it, I said to my, my friends, there was about four or five of us, I said, gentlemen, I am going to marry a woman from the West Indies. <laughs> I, am, I am going to do it, I will. That was the moment. It was a life-changing encounter with a little bit of dough and some boneless goat meat curried and seasoned in a way that was fantastic. Like, and it changed the whole trajectory of my life. And I don't know how real that is. Like I, I said it, I don't know if like, like it, it locked me in and made, you know, made it a, a done deal. But I said to my friends, this is, this is the direction I want to go with the rest of my life. Over roti. Over roti. So the, the funny thing is, is that actually I did marry a woman from the West yes. Indies, yeah. And what's even funnier than that is that she does not cook roti. <laughs> At all. These life-changing encounters, a thing that you, you, you're one way, something happens, and then you are completely moving in a different way. That's my, it's a silly example, but it's something that, that changed my trajectory. And tonight we're gonna talk a little bit about the most famous conversion, the most, 
significant transformation that happened. So much so that when people are talking about their, um, their big change in life, they refer to it as my, my road to Damascus moment. Right? You've heard people talk about that. That's, that's based on this story here in Acts chapter 9. My come to Jesus moment where after a time I have undeniable clarity and, and sureness of the direction that I'm going to next. And that's where we're going to go today. But before we do, we're going to spend some time uh, just doing a bit of a recap and just set the scene of where we've been in the book of Acts. So the, the book of Acts, you know, it, it's, it's a continuation after the Gospels. We know that Luke wrote, it's a, it's a two-parter, Luke and Acts. And now in Acts, uh, Jesus has been crucified by the religious leaders of the time. They said, you are, are too much of a threat to our religious system. You said, the way that you're teaching and the way that you're leading people is, is a threat to our entire uh, structure and the way that we interact and the way that we, we hold this religious system and deal with people. You have to go. You're, you're, you're a rebel rouser. You're a blasphemer. You're out. So they execute Jesus. They crucify him on a cross. Three days later, though, he's resurrected. He comes back to life. And the disciples now are, are waiting to figure out what is it that they're supposed to do. Before Jesus ascends, after his resurrection, before, before he ascends into heaven, he makes a promise that there's going to be a helper to come. A helper is going to come and give the people who are left, his followers, the means and the ability to, to live out the, uh, the mission of spreading this good news around the world. And it doesn't come in a, in a person. It doesn't come as, an, as another, like John the Baptist or another prophet, but it comes in the actual presence of God himself in the Holy Spirit comes and fills all of the disciples and they're now empowered to go and spread the good news across the world. So when they're, they're filled with the Spirit, Peter and the apostles, uh, they're so enthused, they actually get arrested by the religious leaders. And Jimmy talked about this last week. They get arrested and the leaders are so furious that they want to have them murdered as well. This, this, uh, this uh, anti- um, establishment message is causing all kinds of problems. And, and the reason that they wanted these, these uneducated uh, apostles killed was because, like Jesus, they were a threat to the religious system. They were talking about Jesus being this long-awaited Messiah that everybody had waited, and they, they, couldn't, they couldn't accept that. It's actually it's, it's bla- blasphemy. But before they could kill them, there was one wise Jewish leader he was one of the Pharisees who was very well respected by all of the people. His name was Gamaliel. He was a, a, a Jewish leader. And he gives counsel and advice to the situation while the apostles are in jail. And he, he, he sets them straight, gives them, gives them some, some wise advice. And if you've got your Bible, you can turn to it. Uh, this is looking at Acts chapter 5, starting in verses, uh, verse 35. Or even in verse, uh, verse 34, he says, um, a, Pharisee, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. So let's clear the room so we can talk about these guys. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from, if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. <clears throat> so the, others, the other religious leaders, they heard Gamaliel and his advice, and they, they actually agreed to it. They said, this is, this is wise, this is good counsel. And, and Jimmy shared that before that they, they released them, they got a flogging, a good beating, and were instructed specifically, don't, don't speak of this, don't preach this message anymore. And then... They do exactly the opposite. And um, the leaders hold this position of not uh, killing or putting to death or, or crucifying any of these, these followers of the way until uh, we meet Stephen. And again, we talked about this last week. And I love Stephen's approach or Stephen's last recorded words after he's, he's shamed the religious leaders in a way and just brought the truth of what Jesus brought he sounds so much like Jesus when his last breath is, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he falls asleep or he dies. <clears throat> and at the end of the chapter, we see that uh, chapter seven, this is where, where the stoning and the speech of Stephen is. We see, Lord, don't hold this against them. And then the very next line, we have a new character introduced to the, to the narrative. And Saul was there giving approval of his death. This is the first time that we're introduced to this young, zealous man. And Saul, who was born in a place called Tarsus, but was raised and got his schooling and education in Jerusalem. Uh, his, uh, he is a, a Pharisee who most scholars believe trained at the feet or was, was a student of the feet of Gamaliel, this same wise rabbi who was giving this good advice. We read this in Acts 22 from, from Paul's own account or Saul's own account. It says this was, this was his teacher, Gamaliel. And Saul will become the major player for the rest of the New Testament. His presence in the rest of the book of Acts is, is undeniable and he's responsible for writing most of the New Testament. 13 letters are accredited to Paul and uh, in his uh, writings to the church, the early church. And there's lots of opinions about Saul or, or Paul as he's more commonly known. Um, some people will give him more credit maybe than he might deserve, uh, while others may say that he's, um, he's unhelpful, maybe a little rough around the edges. Maybe both are true. I don't know, maybe. But re regardless of what you think specifically about Paul, there's no denying that what he contributed to the early church and its growth and its spread was undeniable and had a heart for a radical kind of inclusivity. That he didn't care about gender or race or ethnicity or your socioeconomic status. He was opening up everything to everyone. This is a very, very, very different picture from the person that we first meet standing there 
holding the coats of those that are throwing a st uh, stoning stones at Stephen the martyr. In Acts uh, chapter one, or sorry, Acts chapter eight, verse one, that same day, the same day, the, one, the day that uh, Stephen was, was martyred, great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And then verse three, but Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them into prison. <clears throat> this persecution scattered the followers of the way, it scattered them all across in places like Ju Judea and Samaria. So this persecution actually was, uh, did two things. It was it scattered the believers, but it also spread the message, the good news that, uh, that Jesus was the Messiah for his people. But Paul, Saul, began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. The rest of chapter 8 uh, is, is a, a mix of all kinds of interesting things. If you, if you read through it, there's a uh, demon possession and, and exorcisms. There's healings. There's miraculous, uh, all kinds of things happening in this book, in this chapter, chapter, uh, chapter eight. There's a, a baptism, a spontaneous baptism from a, an Ethiopian diplomat. There's a, there's a, an interaction with a magician at one point. Like this is, it's all in there. You can read it for yourself. It's very real. And, and all of this stuff is happening uh, while, meanwhile, uh, Saul doing his work. But uh, so any of those questions, those things that I just mentioned or, or things that uh, have been taught on or spoken about in this last number of weeks, we want to uh, open up an opportunity for people to send in their questions in a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll be doing a, a panel discussion. So Jimmy and Laura and I will be uh, taking questions that come from things that either we didn't get a chance to cover in our teaching or, or there was something that, that, that you heard that, okay, I have a, a question about that. That's not really quite clear to me. So if you do have those questions, we invite them, all of them, please send them in at ask at meetinghouse.com. And in a couple of weeks, we'll be able to have that opportunity to get in deeper. If you're curious about the Ethiopian eunuch or Simon the sorcerer, then yeah, send those questions in and we'll be happy to, to answer them. So now uh, looking at Acts chapter nine, starting in verse one. Meanwhile, while all these things were happening in Samaria, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went on to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, this is what they were calling themselves. The Christians were calling themselves at that time, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Breathing out murderous threats and going house to house. Why is he so mad? I've been reading this this passage over and over again over the last little while. I'm like, so, like, what, yo, why, why are you so mad, bro? Like, why, why are you so angry? And Saul, we we understand from later in Acts, as he as he tells and retells his story, was an excellent student of the law, an exceptional student of the law, and as one that looks at the history of the Jewish people, you see a couple of issues that continue to to be the downfall of the Jewish people over the years and years is, is uh, false worship, like idol worship, or following false prophets. So Paul, in his mind, from his perspective, is actually 
and absolutely doing the work of God by protecting the people from this new uh, stream of heresy, this new way that's taking people from, uh, from God, in his opinion. But he's angry. It's like a, a fire-breathing, zealous, devout religious person going all the way up to Damascus to stomp out this, this threat. And in, in verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Anytime we read the word suddenly as we're reading, pay, pay attention. There's something big that's happening right now. Suddenly, something is happening. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And a couple of things to make note of in this passage is that um, we hear Jesus saying his name twice. Saul, Saul. And I should clarify that, that, that Saul, also known as, it's two names, right? You, you hear me interchanging them. Many people, they, they think that, that Saul is the pre-conversion name and Paul is the post-conversion name, but it's, but it's not that. Uh, it's, it's actually, Saul is just his Hebrew name. And then Paul is his Greek name. So, so him changing his name, there's no, there's no big um, interaction like uh, God has with Jacob when he changes his name to Israel or Abram to Abraham. It's not the same kind of situation. Instead, what it is, is Paul actually using more of a, um, a missionary technique. Later on, he becomes the main conduit to bring the good news to all of the Gentiles. And he just knows, yeah, if I use, if I use my, my Hebrew name, I might not get as uh, much of a buy-in from the people. So, so it's more of him just saying, okay, I'm going to use my Greek name in this situation and then, and then uh, Hebrew name maybe in another one. But, but Saul or Paul sees the light, hears the voice of his name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this, this double repetition of the name just gives a kind of emphasis. And I, I don't interpret this, this calling of his name as uh, a condemning, booming voice of condemnation. But I, I think it's a call back to the couple other times where we hear Jesus interact with some of his people when he says the name twice. So you think of, of the story of Mary and Martha when Jesus is there for dinner and, and Mary is at, at Jesus' feet and Martha is, is scurrying around trying to get things there. And, and Jesus, in a, in a loving, gentle kind of rebuke, says, Martha, Martha, you're so worried about all of these things, but the best thing, he, he, he's, not, he's not judging her, but he's seeing somebody who's going in the wrong direction and is just calling her specific by name to get her attention in the kind and loving way that Jesus is and say, no, 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 my sister, you're going the wrong way, come back. Martha, Martha. Or, or later on, uh, yeah, we can read that story, uh, uh, Luke chapter 10, I think is where you can read that story. And later on, near the end of Jesus' life in Luke 22, when the disciples are having an argument, it's the Last Supper, and the disciples are having an argument on who will be the greatest. And there's this back and forth, and Simon, you know, Simon Peter, who's a wild, he's a wild one, and, and Jesus is like, listen, Simon, Simon, I'll pray for you. Pray for your peace. Like you, you're getting it wrong. You're moving in the wrong direction. It's not about who's the greatest. No, the, the greatest will actually serve. He's coming at it at a, at a very different perspective. Jesus 
with, with the way that he does is seeing the person that he's talking to and says the name not once but twice, Simon, Simon, Martha, Martha, and in this case, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's very interesting that Jesus doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? But he says, why are you persecuting me? Now, as far as we know, the two of them, they never met. Like they, 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 their paths never crossed. It's not re- recorded in scripture anyway, so we don't know for sure, but, but it's not likely that they ever met. So, so what is Jesus talking about here? Jesus has, has ascended into heaven. He's not, he's not with the disciples anymore, but he's saying, you're, you're persecuting me, Saul. So this is a really significant point that's being made and in, in, in that this movement that's happening is very different from other movements. Jesus is saying that the people that are following him are somehow an actual real part, an extension of Jesus himself a literal extension of who he is, that somehow as the people have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, the people are now in Jesus and Jesus is somehow in them. There is no separation. And Jesus asks Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's response is great. He says, who are you, Lord? There's no doubt in Paul's mind that he is having a divine encounter. He's not chopping this up to hallucination or dehydration or whatever it is. He's, he's, he, uh, a devout, studied, learn, learned uh, Jew, would have known all of the stories of these, these spiritual divine encounters of the early prophets. You see it in Isaiah. He would have seen it in Ezekiel seen it in Jeremiah. These, these thoughts I'm sure were playing around in his mind of these, these come to Jesus moments kind of thing or these divine uh, encounters, these life-changing account encounters. These maybe would have been playing in his mind in this life-altering event. I'm always, always fascinated to hear stories from people who or how they have personally experienced God. I, I, I can't get enough, I love it. And we call them like, well, we have like testimony night. And it was a time like, um, if, depending on your church tradition, you'd just be like one night and it's just testimonies and people just open mic and one person after another would tell the different stories of what's been going on. But I, I love, I love the stories of how people were one way, had an encounter, met Jesus, and then all of a sudden were something different, moved in a different way. And it it doesn't always have to be a dramatic fall off my horse, blinded by the light, hear an audible voice. No, 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 that's that's not the that's not the the standard. That's actually that doesn't happen very often, you know, as we know. But there's something about the encounter that that makes makes a transformation. I love having conversations. Uh, It's interesting. Sometimes I I have these conversations with people, especially that grew up in the church, because I I didn't have that experience. I don't I don't know that. Like my wife, for example, she'll tell people that she grew up on a on a on the church pew. She was born there. Sunday morning service, Sunday night service, Tuesday night Bible study, Wednesday night prayer meeting, and then Friday night youth. It would be kind of like the rhythm, right, of how you kind of live your life. I can't imagine. 
but, but, but asking her like, okay, so when did your faith, when did your experience or your, your relationship with God stop being your parents and become your own? I love those stories. I love to hear the power of how people were one way, had an experience, or even a, a gradual over time kind of understanding or revelation of, or, or ex, um, growing relationship with Jesus. Paul is not the same after he experiences this, this interaction, this, trans, this, this transformative encounter with Jesus. His experience is confirmed by the men that were with him, as well as Ananias. As you read along in the story, you realize that God gave Ananias a separate vision to confirm and corroborate what Paul had experienced, which kind of sealed it if he wasn't convinced already. But I, I, I can't imagine Paul's life or what he was thinking in the time after he, he dusted himself off, completely blind. The scripture says he was blind for three whole days. And what was going through his mind during this encounter? How could I have been wrong all of this time? How could I have been completely wrong? My teacher, Gamelia, I think he, had, he knew something. He knew this, that there was something to this person named Jesus. I can't believe that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the scriptures that I've so diligently been studying for all of my life. That he's the fulfillment. He's the answer. He's, he's the one that we've actually been waiting for. But after three days, it says that something like scales fell from his eyes. That Paul was blind and now he sees. He's fundamentally, fundamentally different from who he was before. He's not the same person, but in a way he, he kind of is. When you, you, you read his temperament and his, the way that he, he interacted, he's full of vigor. He's full of passion. He's full of an enthusiasm to get the word out, but things are different a little bit. He goes from, from breathing murderous threats to then calling for his people later on as he writes his letters to, to no, it's not murderous threats, it's, it's praying without ceasing. Breathing, praying almost like breathing as you inhale and exhale. Instead of, instead of murderous and threats, he's talking about life. He goes from being a religious Pharisee that seeks his identity and authority from the temple to one that gets thrown out of every synagogue that he, that he visits. <clears throat> He goes from house to house looking for people to arrest that are following the way to visiting house to house, planting churches and encouraging all of the saints that are under persecution. Paul goes from being ready to murder and kill and destroy in the name of God to a man that is ready to lay down his life in order for people to know the good news that Jesus is the one that the whole world has been waiting for. So what's interesting about his journey, another thing that's interesting about his journey is that he's not only the, the great evangelist or the great theologian, but he tells his story. Luke records two other accounts of Paul sharing the story of his radical transformation of his encounter. Acts 22 and Acts 26. This is who I was 
before I met Jesus. This is who I am after. If the encounter is dramatic or if the encounter is subtle, it doesn't matter. But the transformation, the change that occurs, that's the thing that's radical. That's the thing that makes a difference. Paul was a great apologist. Or um, he, was, he was skilled at defending the faith. He was, a good, he was a good debater, a good argument. But there's no, there's no argument, there's no counterattack to your experience of being changed. You can't, you can't debate somebody in that, in what God has done for you personally. You can't. So I w- want to challenge us, each of us, just to think about our own story, our own personal story. If you're a follower of Jesus, think of who you were before and maybe who, if you would continue down that path where you may have ended up versus who you are now. Think about that. And as you, as you genuinely reflect on that transformation, I want to challenge you as well to be comfortable in sharing that story. Share that story. You'll be amazed at the effect that that can have on others that are listening and that are watching. I think of that, that, uh, that passage in 1 Peter. It's like the apologist uh, mantra. It says, always, have, always be prepared for an answer for people that ask you, right? But there's something interesting about that passage. It says, that assumes that you have a life that's interesting enough or different enough that people even want to ask you a question in the first place. What's different about the way that you're living that would actually inspire hope? They say, you have hope. Let me ask you about that. And it's not about having all of the right scriptures, which is, it's good to have that and know that. That's part of it, absolutely. But to have an answer of how you were and how you are now. And maybe you're in a, in a very uh, different position that you are uh, fundamentally opposed to Jesus. Maybe that's your experience right now. You're, you're, you're like, like Paul, have your back to Jesus and want nothing to do with him. Or, or maybe you're completely indifferent, indifferent to the ways of Jesus, or, or, or maybe you just don't know. I want to encourage you as well that as people retell their stories, it's not meant to be judgment. Paul, Paul doesn't tell and retell his story because he's trying to say that this is the blueprint, this is what you need to experience. It's not a prescription that his experience should be like anyone else's. But what it does do is points to the patience and grace of God and how patient God has been with each and every one of us. So for those that are arms folded and back to Jesus, know this, that God is so incredibly patient towards you and loves you and, and, and sees you knows your story, knows your name, and will say it twice to get your attention to know you. He shows us that as far as we can go in the wrong direction, there is still hope, and God is patient with us. I'll close by, um, by reading First Timothy uh, chapter 1. Even Paul's words, what... Uh, little later on in life in his ministry. This is this, this is a letter to Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus, O Lord, who has given me strength 
that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and in unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, here it is, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, and only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.